This episode features dramatizations of body horror and violence. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single depiction of Gashadokuro. Today's episode combines elements from a number of Japanese legends and stories for dramatic effect. Hello everyone, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Mythical Monsters, a Spotify original from Parcast. We now set off on an epic journey through Japan, hiding from hungry spirits and seeking out legendary serpents. These monsters are ancient, but you'd be surprised at how many of them have lived on into modern day. So bar the door against the mountain wind's chill, curl up by the fire, and keep an eye out for creatures. Because in Japan, terrifying beasts can be found everywhere you look. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we meet the Gasha Dokuro, a Japanese take on the living dead. This giant, hungry skeleton is an amalgam of yokai, or inhuman spirits. Each began as the restless ghost of someone killed by a calamity like famine or war. But when the spirits join together into the Gashadokuro, they become more powerful and frightening than you can imagine. Coming up, we'll raise the dead. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. As in other Japanese legends, the giant, skeletal Gasha Dokuro's name is partially derived from the sound the yokai spirit makes. In this case, it's a gachi gachi or gata gata sound as its bones clack together. But you won't hear it coming if it doesn't want you to. Like many yokai, the Gashadokuro can be deathly silent and invisible until the moment it swoops down to devour you. Before we discuss how restless spirits become monstrous yokai, we must understand how easy it is to become a ghost or yurei in Japanese tradition. In the West, ghosts are generally believed to be tied to points of heavy trauma, but in Japan, a ghost can be the result of any unfinished business, whether it be love, revenge, or realizing you forgot to buy milk right before you're hit by a bus. 
To put a Uri to rest, you have to help them get what they want. Easy enough when all the spirit wants is to buy milk. But when you're dealing with a spirit seeking vengeance, be warned, they will never stop until they reach their goal. This led to the practice of bringing in a Zenchishki, or Buddhist teacher, to help the dying individual detach themselves from the world. This process can be difficult, and sometimes these restless, unfulfilled spirits become twisted, evolving into shadows of their old selves. They turn into yokai, supernatural creatures beyond our understanding. The gashadokuro is what happens when those spirits converge into one. Their hunger and rage binds them together into a giant skeleton. That's terrifying enough, but it gets scarier. The mindless gashadokuro can be controlled by even darker forces. Daichi had never left Shimosa province. He'd never crossed the Tone River. He'd barely ever left his little town of Soma. This didn't bother him, though. He played with his friends Susumu and Katashi and did not think of adventure or glory. That was for the great lords of the Taira clan, who lived in the castle high on the hill above their village. Most days, Daichi, Susumu, and Katashi would linger by Daichi's father's forge in his blacksmith's shop, watching the metal flow red-hot and cool into shining solid. Daichi's father didn't mind. He was proud of his work. He'd say, You see, boys, this is what brings us closer to the kami, to the unity of eternity. The heat brings disparate elements together to form a powerful whole, just as each soldier and villager must as well. We protect and strengthen each other. Daichi did feel protected when his father donned his armor to defend the province from invaders, but that warm sheath of security was torn apart after his father was killed in battle. The funeral rites offered no comfort, and Daichi began to have nightmares. It was always the same one. He would wake in the early hours immobile, feeling cold enough to freeze. Then a warm breeze blew over him. It was soothing until he realized that it was moving through him. He'd look down and realize it was because he was a skeleton, the breeze rattling his ribs and air filling his empty skull. Daichi was sure he'd somehow died and decomposed in the night. He tried to scream for help, but he had no lungs to breathe or tongue to speak. Susumu and Katashi couldn't stop Daichi's nightmares, but they did their best to console him in his grief. Katashi told him of the grand deeds his father did in battle. Susumu reassured Daichi that his father would be worshipped as a great ancestor kami. But perhaps these tales worked too well. Daichi wanted to be a hero like his father and lead a life without fear. So when he came of age, 
he became a soldier too. Susumu and Katashi joined him. The young men had just left training when a war broke out between their local leader, Lord Taira no Masakado, and the emperor in Kyoto to the southwest. Daichi and his friends didn't know what the dispute was about, land or a woman perhaps, but it didn't matter. Soldiers did as they were told. Daichi's battles took him far from home, far enough that he did not hear of the famine that had ravaged his village until it had taken his mother. But what was even worse was that Daichi discovered that the food that was left in the village had been sent to feed Daichi and his fellow soldiers. Daichi tried to ignore his anger and guilt. He closed his mind to the idea that his rulers had chosen to keep him alive and let innocents like his mother die. Instead, he focused on his battles. He had to get home to perform his mother's funeral rites, and the only way to do that was to win the war. The fighting blended together. Set up camp, kill, sleep, pack up, repeat. One bloody day, screams assaulted Daichi's ears as he dodged enemy blades on the battlefield. His leg caught on a corpse. He nearly fell, but he made sure to look away from the bodies as he steadied himself. If he couldn't remember what their faces looked like, they wouldn't haunt his dreams. Daichi pushed forth to find Susumu and Katashi. They'd run ahead of him, as they always did, his own personal vanguard. But then Daichi nearly tripped again, and this time he accidentally looked down. Susumu was laying at Daichi's feet. His eyes were cloudy, his armor pierced and bloodied, and his lifeless gaze was directed at the sky, like he was waiting for rain. And rain it did. As Daichi stood there, anger coiling in his stomach, the heavens opened to release a downpour. Daichi saw an enemy coming for him, but somehow he felt alert, powerful. He swung his sword, relishing the moment when it cut into the enemy soldier's side and hit bone. Daichi pulled his sword from the man's flailing body, then moved on to the next. He plunged his sword into another man's throat and delighted as a spray of blood coated his face. This was what war was for. He could rid the world of those that had hurt him and his family and his friend. Daichi was never so certain of victory. But then he felt a strange sensation in his side. Pain seared through Daichi as he turned to see a warrior pull his blade from his ribs. He staggered back, then fell onto Susumu's corpse. Daichi laid there, feeling the weight of feet on his back as other soldiers fought above him. The field grew muddy, choked with gore and rain. Another press of a foot pushed his face into the cold hollow of Susumu's neck. Daichi needed to move, to get up and keep fighting. He needed to find Katashi, 
Together, they could avenge Susumu's death, and his father's and mother's too, and every other soul who'd lost their life to this unrelenting violence. But Daichi was trapped under the weight of soldiers' feet, drowning in his own blood. And the men who were crushing him were fighters on his side. They weren't loyal to him. They were mindless, loyal only to their commanders. Daichi slashed wildly at the shapes above him, trying to take someone, anyone, with him into the darkness. They deserved it. They all deserved it. His eyes rolled up to the gray sky, as Susumu's had. The rain burned his vision. Daichi knew he should take the moment to meditate as his life faded, just as he was sure Susumu had done in his last moments. But Katashi was still out there. His friend needed his help, and the world needed his vengeance. The truth was, Daichi wanted to become a yurei, he wanted to be a ghost, to haunt everyone who had harmed his friend, killed his father, and starved his mother. He wanted to destroy everyone who had started this war. That meant the Tyra clan and the emperor. It was a true rebellion, and Daichi felt angry and magnificent. Suddenly, a woman appeared above him more beautiful than anyone he'd ever seen. Her black robes were covered in bones, and her dark eyes shined from underneath her dark hair. She was a radiant Kami spirit, he was sure of it, and she had a message for him. Stay strong, my soldier. Your battle is not over. Coming up, Daichi meets the woman in black. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast and premieres Monday, May 3rd. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. After he was slain on the battlefield, Daichi knew the Kami spirit in the bone-covered robes would aid him in his ghostly purpose. She would help him avenge the deaths of his loved ones in this horrible war. His father, his mother, his friend Susumu, and perhaps even his friend Katashi, who he'd lost track of in battle. But after the Kami woman appeared to him as he lay dying on the battlefield, she then vanished. For hours, he was left wading in the dirt and in the blood, 
dead, and although he couldn't feel what was happening to his body, he could still see it. As a child, Daichi had nightmares about transforming into a skeleton. Now he became his own worst nightmare. His body was quickly decaying. Foxes snuck out of the woods to tear strips of flesh away from his bones. Insects burrowed inside of his corpse, nesting in his festering organs. And a crow plucked one of his eyes out of its socket. He saw the eye burst in the crooked beak. But Daichi's vision somehow still remained. His best friend Susumu, who was dead beside him, was torn to pieces by scavengers. Daichi saw it all, and that's what hurt him the most. For all his friend's serenity, his soul could not move on to the other world if his body was not cared for. Daichi could not sense Susumu's spirit. Susumu had always been better at detaching himself from his earthly worries. Perhaps that meant Susumu roamed the earth as a yurei spirit, instead of being trapped in his corpse like Daichi. It was a bittersweet comfort, because Daichi needed a friend. He was now certain that Katashi had fallen too. If he'd survived, his friend would not leave Daichi and Susumu to rot this way. The war dragged on, often right on top of Daichi's corpse. The clash of swords and the screams of the dying echoed in his ears at all hours. But all Daichi heard was his own rage. His anger burned deep inside him, penetrating his marrow, the only bits of his body the scavengers could not reach. Finally, one cloudless day when he could bear it no longer, something swirled in the sky. Daichi couldn't take his eyes off of it. The object shimmered between black and green and purple like a beetle's wings as it hurtled its way down. A crash louder than 10,000 cymbals rang out as the object struck the ground next to Daichi. Daichi's fingers twitched. Suddenly, he could move and feel again. The dark-robed woman had returned. The bones that clung to her clothes glistened as if polished, and her hair was drawn up in a warrior-like knot, giving her the appearance of a beautiful man and woman all at once. When she spoke, her voice was as enchanting as he remembered. Greetings, I am Princess Takiyasha, daughter of the great Taira no Masakado. You fought for my father against Kyoto's emperor, but my father has fallen and our palace crawls with our enemies. Will you fight for me to take it back? No. This was not Daichi's plan. He thought this woman was a spirit, not another Tyra leader. His mission was to punish those responsible for his suffering, which included Princess Takiyasha and her father and their pointless war on Kyoto. He opened his mouth to speak, but nothing came out, so he shook his head. The princess tutted as she leaned over him and smiled. Oh, my pale little one, I only asked out of politeness. Then she lifted her hand to the sky. 
Sparks exploded from Daichi's body. He felt his bones rise and his anger bent to a will that wasn't his own. Princess Takiyasha smiled at Daichi as he hovered in the air in front of her. Then, with a flick of her other hand, she raised the other bodies that were left on the field. A thousand skeletons rose in unison. They were a magnificent sea of ivory, poised and ready for their new commander. Princess Takiyasha's voice was soft, but strong. I forgive your rebellion against my wishes, my perfect soldiers. I know how it feels to ache for vengeance. I will give you what you wish, to feed that hunger. Takiyasha smiled. Now, become what you were born to be. The world tilted, and Daichi felt his bones rip apart. That shared consciousness had become physical. That angry marrow he'd guarded so fiercely now fused with another skeleton, and another, and another. He was reminded of his father's forge when he was a child, the dark metal growing red-hot as iron ore flowed like water. He'd always said that individual elements had to dissolve and become one in order to make a beautiful and terrible weapon. Daichi's father was right. What had been sharp became curved, and what had been curved became sharp. Daichi's form did not belong to him anymore. A small echo of who he'd been before knew that this was wrong, profane. But there was something exciting about becoming part of a greater, perfect whole. Princess Takiyasha's eyes glittered with pride as the new skeletal form rose up, rattling in a symphony of death. She sighed, Oh, my soldiers, you're beautiful. The massive skeleton stood to its full height, three times as tall as any building Daichi had seen. Its fingers, his fingers, were the size of the draft horses he'd cared for as a child. But those memories slid away as Daichi realized he no longer had a true physical form. Some part of him was in the skeleton's skull, another in its ankle and wrist. He could feel the other soldier's spirits jostling against his own. The princess raised her voice against the wind. Come, my Gashadokuro. We will destroy the false emperor in Kyoto and avenge my father. But first, we must rid my home, Soma Castle, of its invaders. Daichi felt a twinge of alarm. The Gashadokuro would leave terror in its wake wherever its princess commanded it to travel. And he knew once Princess Takiyasha's vengeance was achieved, the Gashadokuro would devour anything that lay beyond Soma Castle. And beyond Soma Castle was Daichi's home. Coming up, Daichi and his brethren go home for a bite to eat. Now back to the story. Daichi was gone. 
or most of him was, the soldier's remains were now part of Princess Takiyasha's Gashadokuro, a gigantic rattling skeleton she conjured with sorcery. And his spirit floated above the bony monster, barely tethered to his identity. The Gashadokuro was fueled by the hunger and rage of soldiers who had died in a pointless war between the princess's father and the emperor in Kyoto. And the princess had no qualms about using their pain to defend her father's lands and oust enemy forces from his palace. Daichi knew the skeletal beast would soon destroy his village too. He fought against the single-minded anger that surrounded him, trying to remember who he was and what he had to do to make things right. He needed to stop Takiyasha. He pushed against the sea of rage, hoping to wake the other soldiers from their stupor. He called his friend Katashi's name, almost hoping he'd fallen and had been absorbed into the Gashadokuro too. But there was no answer. Takiyasha cocked her head, sensing Daichi's efforts. She laughed. You'll tire yourself, little one. Let it go. It'll be easier if you just join the fun. The ground shook and the bones rattled as the massive creature traveled through the forest. It stepped over trees and shrines like they were children's toys. Though it towered above the ground, no one saw the Gashadokuro. Takiyasha had seen to it that the monster remained invisible. It creeped up behind Soma Castle unseen, crouching behind the palace walls. Down below, on the other side of the castle, the little village of Soma slept. Daichi had not seen home in years since his mother had died. Famine had decimated the population, but through the giant skeletal eye sockets, he still saw some lights in the village's little houses. His people were still living there, and they were in danger. Daichi wanted to scream to warn them, but he no longer had a voice. Or if he did, he couldn't hear it under the din of his fellow undead soldiers. Some were from his village too. Did they not care? Or perhaps it was easier not to. Daichi grew more and more afraid as he watched Princess Takiyasha's plan unfold. She crept to her castle's doors, then turned to gaze up at her Gashadokuro with hope and sorrow in her eyes. It was clear reclaiming her father's castle was a matter of grief and honor to her, and strangely, Daichi understood that. Takiyasha put her finger to her lips and shushed the Gashadokuro playfully. Then she disappeared into thin air. The palace door opened silently, then shut. Takiyasha, as invisible as her monster, now waited inside for her prey. Daichi and his hungry brethren in the Gashadokuro watched as a man rode through the town on a horse. He wore imperial court regalia from Kyoto. The man guided his horse into the castle courtyard, then headed inside. The Gashadokuro bent down to get a better look. 
Muffled voices echoed through the palace walls in the throne room. Takiyasha seemed to be trying to reason with the man, but then she screamed. No, Daichi realized it wasn't a scream. It was a battle cry, one that called out to him and every other soldier in their monstrous skeletal fortress. The Gashadokuro emerged from the darkness and thrust a bony hand through the castle window, grasping for the man. The Gashadokuro was massive and strong, but the man from Kyoto was small and quick. A game of cat and mouse began as it searched for its prey. The man screamed and ducked as giant fingers pursued him through the palace. Takiyasha laughed at the man's terror. Daichi directed all the anger he could at the princess, hoping the Gashadokuro would attack her instead. But the rest of him was too intent on stalking the man from Kyoto. The Gashadokuro turned invisible again, going absolutely still. In the silence, the skeleton could hear only two sounds the princess's soft laughter and the breath of its prey. The magistrate from Kyoto cowered, wild-eyed and terrified. He looked up at the hole in the castle ceiling. Then he screamed again as a massive skeletal hand appeared out of thin air and scooped him up. As he was pulled high above the palace and into the night sky, the man saw the Gashadokuro's glorious, terrible form in full. The last expression on his face was one of wonder, before the Gashadokuro bit off his head. The blood was warm, like rice fresh from the pot, and the Gashadokuro wanted more. Daichi could work with this. He seized his chance as Takiyasha stalked out into the courtyard. She gave more orders, new royal targets, new petty scores to settle, but Daichi called out to his brethren. Whatever she was offering wasn't enough. It would never be enough. She had not cared when they were hungry in life, and she did not care now. They were pawns in a game they'd already lost. He thought of Katashi's love of adventure and stories of great warriors. He told his companions they were heroes too. They had a right to their own vengeance because they had been wronged. They had the right to do as they wanted. And somehow, the rest of the soldiers heard him. The giant skeleton looked down at Princess Takiyasha and shook its head no. Her jaw dropped and Daichi felt a shiver of pride. His joy was fleeting though, for the Gashadokuro then lumbered from the castle and into the village below. Daichi screamed at it to stop, but the Gashadokuro didn't care. Daichi desperately fought for control, but there was no stopping the Gashadokuro's rage. It swept up villager after villager, ripping heads off to bring that sweet taste to its dulled sense again. 
people screamed and animals panicked in their pens as the town of Soma faced another great calamity. Daichi begged the beast to stop, to resist this all-consuming rage. But then, in the darkness, he saw Katashi on the road below. Daichi was stunned. He was sure his friend had perished in the war, along with Susumu and himself. If he'd survived, why hadn't he carried out the burial rites that would have freed Daichi from this horrible limbo, rotting alone on the battlefield? And yet there Katashi stood, lit by moonlight, staring up with an expression that Daichi found cowardly. Daichi knew what Susumu would want him to do. He would want him to fight the hunger, forgive Katashi, and get him to safety. But Katashi had not helped, and Daichi was Daichi. He'd grown from a frightened child to an angry man, and rage kept him alive even after death. Now he did not know if his rage was so righteous. He didn't want to make decisions, and he didn't want to think anymore. Luckily, there were a thousand other minds squirming alongside him. He turned to them and gave in to their embrace. Daichi melted away into the Gashadokuro. The creature scooped a screaming Katashi up in one deathly white, bony hand. And once again, it began to eat. The history behind the most well-known Gashadokuro legend dates back to 939 CE. A high-ranking samurai noble named Taira no Masakado led a rebellion against the rule of the Yamato and Fujiwara clans, who were based in Kyoto. He conquered two northern provinces and declared himself an emperor, but was killed in battle in 940 CE. Legends say his daughter, Takiyasha, got revenge. When Kyoto sent a man to search her house for more rebels, she summoned a Gashadokuro to defend herself. This incident was famously depicted in an 1844 triptych woodcut by Utagawa Kuniyoshi, known as Takiyasha the Witch and the Skeleton Spectre. Takiyasha's clan fell during the Heian period, but the tale of her Gashadokuro may be inspired by the previous Nara period, a time of great turmoil. Earthquakes and tsunamis rocked Japan, and plague and famine were widespread. A smallpox epidemic in the 8th century killed about 25% of the population. Political infighting between noble houses also resulted in many fruitless battles with unnecessary casualties. The imperial government failed to protect those it commanded, and the legend of Takiyasha and her Gashadokuro gives us a horrifying vision of a court that continues to abuse its people even after they give their lives to defend it. While the fallen soldiers may not have found justice in life, they find vengeance in death. The Gashadokuro is temporarily held at bay by the princess's sorcery, but it is ultimately too powerful. The suffering spirits that make up the Gashadokuro have gone beyond the point of reason or justice. They just want to hurt people the way others hurt them. 
the creature reminds us that the anger of the oppressed cannot be ignored, and that those in power cannot expect to bend people to their will without consequences. It's said that gashadokuro are less common today because there's less war and famine, but institutional negligence is still a long way from eradicated. There's something truly unsettling about a skeleton the size of a building being able to sneak up on you without warning. And when it forces you to examine your corruption, that's even more terrifying. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode about another Japanese beast. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Lil De Ritter and Jennifer Riche, with writing assistance by Alex Garland, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 